You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Total Onslaught, Episode 21, with Walter Feit. Well, the title of this lecture is A Woman Rides the Beast, because that's exactly what it says in the book of Revelation. In the last lecture that we had on Revelation chapter 13, we looked at the various issues pertaining to the papal power and the power that arises out of the earth, and we identified that as the United States, which would force the world to accept legislation honoring the first beast. Now, that is a process which will have to continue over all the kingdoms of the world. Now, Revelation chapter 17 gives us more details on this issue. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show ye the judgment of the great whore, these are strong words, that sitteth upon many waters. So here is a woman that is a prostitute. In other words, she is unfaithful to God, a Woman, in a biblical sense, is a church, and there are numerous texts in the Old and the New Testament to substantiate this. Christ is also the husband. He's coming to fetch his bride, the church, the woman aspect over there. So this great apostate woman sits on many waters, and we saw that the waters are multitudes, nations, peoples, tongues, according to the definition in Revelation itself. And with this woman, the kings of the earth have committed fornication. That means they have had relationships with her, which were, of course, contrary to the relations that God would like them to have. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. That would mean, if wine is a symbol of teachings, doctrines, then uh, wine of fornication that makes drunk is doctrine that confuses the mind. So basically what it, the text says is that a church, an apostate church, is in control of issues. The kings of the world have relations with this apostate church and they are drunk, they cannot understand because they have absorbed these doctrines which are contrary to the Bible because they are doctrines of prostitution. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. So here is a red color. This is a color of sacrifice. And it was full of names of blasphemy. So it is a blasphemous power, and we saw what that meant when we looked at Revelation chapter 13, and the Bible gives us clues by showing that to say that you are in the place of God, that you are God on earth, that you can forgive sins, that you can take that which applies to Christ and apply it to yourself, that's a blasphemy. And we saw that the Roman church had actually done that. So this woman sitting on the scarlet beast full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And that, of course, again is the symbol that we had in Revelation chapter 13. If you count the heads, 
that we have in all the beasts of Daniel chapter 7, you will find that there are seven heads there as well. Because the first beast obviously has one head over there, uh, which represents Babylon, the lion. Medo-Persia has one head. Greece is represented having four heads. And then one head of the final beast in Daniel chapter 7 adds up to seven heads. That means over time, all the time periods are covered and have been incorporated into this one structure. This Catholicism structure has aspects of all the philosophies of all the kingdoms of the ages embodied in it. It has perfected paganism, if you would like to call it that. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, two colors which apply definitely to the Roman church. They use the colors purple and they use the colors red for cardinals and for bishops. And decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, there's no doubt that this is the richest system that has ever existed, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So this golden cup is full of false doctrines. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery. That means it is a concealed science, if you like. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, which implies that there are others, other women, if you like, that are also apostate, but she is the mother of them all. And abominations of the earth. This is very strong language, and we will have to see if this is so. Well, let's have a look at the seven-headed beast. In Psalm 74, verse 14, we read, Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and gavest him to be meat food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. So here is a beast that is described as Leviathan, a dragon-like beast, and it is implied that it has more than one head. In mythology, Leviathan has seven heads. Isaiah chapter 27 verse 1. In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing servant, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Isn't that interesting? Slay the dragon that is in the sea. Do you remember that we had some interesting symbolism when we looked at Mariolity? where Mary is called the star of the sea. Interesting, interesting uh, analogy. Revelation 12, 3, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns. So here we have a dragon in Isaiah, and we don't know how many heads it has. We have a Leviathan in Psalm 74, verse 14, which is applied to the dragon in Isaiah 27, verse 1. And in Revelation, we see that it has seven horns. Can you see how it all fits together? If you use parallelism, you can find all the heads uh, that you need. And seven crowns upon his heads. So this dragon in Revelation chapter 12 is a ruling power. He is in control. 
He is the prince of this world. Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. Revelation 13, verse 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. So here we have now a division into ten horns, that's ten kingdoms, upon the horns ten crowns, that means the beast ruled with these ten kingdoms, that's the time of the Middle Ages, when Rome ruled by means of the powers of Europe. Revelation 17.3, And so I car carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Obviously, this is the representation of the kingdom of Satan throughout all the ages. And in Revelation 17, we're going to have the culmination of his power in the final events just before the coming of Christ. So the dragon has seven heads. In the book of Revelation, the heads denote political powers through whom the dragon works. But just for interest's sake, it is interesting that Satan tried seven times to set up his own unchallenged kingdom. Firstly, there was a war in heaven. And God's response was expulsion of Satan from heaven. Then, Adam and Eve and the pre-flood world, he tried to set up his kingdom. God's response to Adam and Eve, promise of redemption, sacrificial system. Then, Tower of Babel was his next attempt to set up unity of all the nations on earth. God's response, confusion of tongues separating the nations. Interesting. Then, during the incarnation, he thought if he can destroy Christ, he can set up his kingdom. Victory over sin and death was God's response. Turning the greatest apparent defeat into the greatest victory the universe had ever seen. He tried to set up his kingdom through pagan Rome, and the answer, Smyrna resolved. People were prepared to die rather than to be eliminated. He tried to set up his uh, system through papal Rome. The answer, Reformation. Nowhere could he succeed. Will there be a final time when he will try and set up his kingdom? Something where all the nations come together in one great new world order? Is that possible? That would be interesting. Seven times he would have tried. And there is an answer which I've called the midnight and loud cry. But we'll deal with that in another lecture. It's kind of complicated. Revelation chapter 12 verse 3 says, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. This power was going to make war against another system of earth, on earth, obviously representing God's people. And so there is a dragon, and it attacks the woman in white. And this war will continue until the coming of Christ, so the Bible says. So this creature that we found in Revelation 13 that came out of the sea tell, uh, tells us what the attributes of the papal power are, because this 
is a system that has all the attributes of the little horn power in Daniel chapter 7. So it is the same system, and it tells us that it has Medo-Persian components because it has the feet of the bear. It has Greek philosophy in it, which tells us the whole evolution theory, by the way, is based on Greek philosophy and comes from there. It has Greek components in it. It has the Babylonian components in That would take a whole lecture to show the comparison between Babylonian religion and Catholicism. There's a lecture called The Wine of Babylon that you could look at for that purpose. And then it has the ten horns, which represent this final power which would control, eventually, the whole world. So, heads of lions with ten horns. And a woman is, of course, the church itself, the ecclesiastical arm, controlling all the political powers, decked in purple and red and holding this cup in her hand. I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of the names of blasphemy, blasphemy. Revelation 17, verse 3. And the purple and the scarlet colors and the gold and the precious stones. Rome is the richest church institution in the entire world. The treasures that are in the Vatican Museum boggle the mind. It is unbelievable. And in this golden cup, there are all these abominations of her false teachings. Now, we have already seen that she is called mystery. Now, something that is a mysterious or mystery is something that works behind the scenes that is secret. And she is the mother, mysteriously so, of all the other harlots as well. Does she control all the churches? in the world that are apostate towards God? Is that a possibility here? Well, we haven't looked into that issue in great detail yet, but we'll come to that in another lecture. Revelation 17, verse 5. The old Babylonian religion and the old bull cult, all of these, these ancient religions, we will find all these aspects in Rome. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4 says, They will turn away from listening to the truth and give their attention to legends. So the church would eventually succumb, and instead of believing in salvation through the Lamb of God that was sacrificed for the sins of the world, they will have all kinds of notions which will satisfy their own egos. Psalms 116 verse 13 says, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So, which is our choice? Are we going to use the systems of the world and be comfortable? Or are we going to call upon the name of the Lord and be ostracized? That's the choice that we have. The Tower of Babel, a woman calling herself Babylon, or the Bible calls her Babylon, and all these features fit together. Second Thessalonians talks about this mystery in chapter 2, verse 7 to 10, for this mystery of iniquity does already work. 
So this stealthful working was already working in the time when this was written, when Paul penned these words, this power was already working. Now we've had lectures here where we've looked at the early church fathers with their corrupt Gnostic ideas and we've found them in all the Masonic writings of the Bishop of Alexandria, of Constantinople, and all of these with their Oregon ideas. So it was working even in Paul's time. Gnosticism was rising. Eliphas Levi tells us that Simon Magus was the father of the modern Gnostic movement within the church itself. So this mystery was working in the time of the apostles. Only he who now letteth will let until he is taken out of the way. And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. What does that mean? And shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, but that they might be saved. Powerful text. Tells us the circumstances of the rise of this Antichrist system. And it tells us that there was something holding it back. So basically we could read this as he who holds it back will be taken out of the way and then shall this wicked one be revealed. So something is holding it back, the system, which was already working in, in the time of Paul, but it would be taken away and then the system would rise and it would work with lying wonders, deceivableness, unrighteousness, and it will deceive the whole world, taking away the truth from people. Let's have a look at this tremendous reference in Paul's writings regarding the man of sin. Now we beseech you, brethren, by, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that day of Christ is at hand. Jesus is not coming yet, that he said. Jesus is not here, as some of you think. He's not coming yet. It's not soon that he's coming. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. So, Jesus' coming will not happen until there is a falling away and the man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition. Interesting word, the son of perdition. Used only twice in the Bible. Did you know that? Used only twice in the Bible. Only two have been called sons of perdition. The one is this man of sin, this system, and the other one was Judas. Now, if I'd like to ask you, how did Judas betray Jesus with a kiss? So did he 
present himself as one of them, yes or no? Isn't it possible that this system, the son of perdition, will also present himself as a representative of Jesus Christ and betray everyone with a kiss? Isn't it possible? Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. And we saw that the papacy actually did that. And this is that spirit of antichrist whereof we have heard that it should come even now already is in the world, 1 John 4 verse 3. So this power was working in the time of John and in the time of the apostles. This is not some future power There's, as many believe that will come uh, sometime in the future as futurism teaches in the world out there. Remember ye not, Paul continues, that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. So Paul said to them, I told you that something was withholding the Antichrist, preventing it from developing, and you know what it is. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he that now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. The uh, BBE translation says there is one who is keeping back that evil till he is taken out of the way. So something was withholding this power from rising. And when that something has been taken away, then the Antichrist will come. And then shall the wicked be revealed, and the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So God will fight against the system with the word of God, and finally will destroy it at his coming. That's a promise. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, and we have this text again of how he works. So when will this Antichrist arrive? Paul told them that something was withholding, we don't have the facts here as to what it was. So here, Gratian Guinness, Romanism and the Reformation, writes, here we have a point on which Paul affirms the existence of knowledge in the Christian church. The early church knew, he says, what the hindrance was. The early church tells us what it did know upon the subject, and no one in these days can be in a position to contradict its testimony as to what Paul had by word of mouth only told the Thessalonians. Today we are saying, what hindered it? It was the Holy Spirit. It was that. It was that. It was the other. No, we don't know, because Paul is the only one who told them what was hindering it. It is a point on which ancient tradition alone can have authority. Modern speculation is positively impertinent on such a subject. That makes sense. Can the early church fathers tell us what Paul had told them, what was holding it back? Tertullian, on the resurrection, chapter 24, this was written 200 AD, says the following. He who now hinders must hinder until he be taken out of the way. What obstacle is there but the Roman state, the falling away of which, by being scattered into ten kingdoms, shall introduce Antichrist? Interesting. So that's what the early church fathers understood. That when Rome finally 
collapses, then Antichrist will come. That's what they believe. Let's continue. John Chrysostom, homily on 2 Thessalonians, that was Bishop of Constantinople, 390, says, Only there is one that restraineth now until he be taken out of the way. That is, when the Roman Empire is taken out of the way, then he, Antichrist, shall come. There's another one that says it. Interesting. Well, Paul says the power was already working then, and sooner or later he will arise. There's something hindering it, but when it goes, I told you what it was, then it will arise. Here is Edward Elliot, commentary on the Apocalypse, and it says, We have the consenting testimony of the early fathers from Irenaeus, the disciple of St. John, down to Chrysostom and Jerome, to the effect that it was understood to be the imperial power ruling and residing at Rome that had to be taken out of the way. Gratian Guinness says, while the Caesars held imperial power, it was impossible for the predicted Antichrist to arise. On the fall of the Caesars, he would arise. That makes sense. The biblical prophecies make sense. The 1,260-day prophecy makes sense. If you look at all of these issues, and uh, while the Caesars held imperial power, he would arise on the fall of the Caesars, he would arise. Grattan Guinness, Romanism and the Reformation. There are numerous that, uh, sources that say this. Paul did not identify the restraining power, which they knew to be Rome, for fear of reprisals. Remember, the Christian church was under persecution by Rome. So Paul wrote them an epistle and he said, what I told you personally, you know what it is, that must first happen, so don't go teaching all kinds of doctrines. We're waiting for the falling away, the man of sin, the obstacle to be taken away, the man of sin will arise, and then he will rule on this earth. And then only, eventually, will Christ come, and he will consume this power when he returns. That's the biblical version. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Will you notice that? God was manifest in the flesh. Let's not change that. Justified in the spirit, seen of the angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That's the only mystery in Christianity. No other mystery. We will never comprehend how the God of the universe could have become man for us, died for us, and then save us and make us sons and daughters of the Most High. It's a mystery. We'll never understand that. Everything else has been revealed in its fullness, but this will remain our study for all eternity. That is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of iniquity wants to undo this salient, eternal, central fact of salvation. And we have already seen in the lectures how the efforts have been made to reduce the workings of Jesus Christ. And how through the secret societies, the ancient Babylonian religion through Kabbalism and Gnosticism, remove Jesus Christ as the deity that saves and replaces it with another power. We've seen the Islamic secret societies, and we've see what, seen what the Quran teaches, that Jesus was not the Son of God. 
that he never died, and that his blood was not shed for us, that he was whisked away, that he's spiritualized, he never came in the flesh. All of these issues, we see this is the very central doctrine of Rome today, and is the theology of the Vulgates. The Templars, the Rosicrucians, the Jesuits, Freemasonry, all of them hold to the central doctrine. Two doctrines in the world. Not a hundred, not two hundred, not three hundred, and not five hundred. Two doctrines in the world. All wearing different cloaks. All controlled by one power. Unbelievable. Remember the story of Bell? We discussed that, the Temple of Bell, and where we saw the woman with this nice little miniskirt. Do you think thought the miniskirt was something new? No, 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 it is very old. There it is. And, uh, well, this lady, of, I don't know whether she was a lady of the night or a lady of the day, but this lady with a golden cup in her hand represents the worship of Baal. And uh, Fides, how fascinating. Sita del Vaticano, Fides, we saw, very interesting, has the meaning of the worship of the goddess. The initiates, the insider initiates, were the Fides. And we wouldn't know what that was if we didn't have this nice quote from Albert G. Mackey, 33 degree Freemason, which says, the right hand has in all ages been deemed an emblem of fidelity, and our ancient brethren worshipped deity under the name of fides, or fidelity, which was sometimes represented by two right hands joined, which is also what uh, Freemasonry does, and sometimes by two human figures holding each other by the right hand. Numa was the first who erected the altar to fides, under which name the goddess of oaths and honesty was worshipped. Obligations taken in a name were considered as more inviolable than any others. Here's a mystery. We are showing you one side, but we actually teach another. Morals and Dogma, page 292, you will recall we had the secret symbols, where we had the PX over here, which is on so many preaching rosters and pulpits and altars today and it's given Christian connotations for the goyim, for the catechumens. But here, the insider himself tells us it is the staff of Osiris. So it is the representation of the male member that sits in the boat. Fine. And he also told us that uh, the various other symbols that we see over here are pagan symbols, the Tao and uh, this cross over here, and the swastikas, this way or the other way, and the stars of David, and then this interesting statement, the vestments of the priests of Horus were covered with these crosses, and then you have the Maltese cross. And I showed you that the papacy has this on its vestments, and the bishops wear it as well. These are priests of Horus. That's a mystery. You have to look behind the scenes to find it. The mitre that they wear on their head, that today looks, that represents actually the fish head of the god Dagon, which means Dag, On, is the fish god. So the fish head, later 
the cape was removed, the fish cape, it was replaced with a red cloak or a purple cloak or whatever color, but the mitre with the open fish head on top remained. There you see in Babylonian relief in the uh, Pergamum Museum, you see the fish with the open mouth, the mitre on the head of the priests of Babylon, and here they had pails with water, and they had little branches of hyssop that they put in, and they sprinkled it upon the waters. And this is exactly what the papacy does. The bishops walk with their holy water. The Pope has a branch of hyssop, and he sprays the people. This is Babylonian ritual. This is cleansing through Bab El. Bab the gate, El God, Bab El Babel, portal to God. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the gate. Jesus is the gate. There's only one way to heaven, and that is through acknowledging our sinfulness and accepting the vicarious sacrifice of the Son of God who died for us. That's the only way there is to salvation. But Babel says, no, we have another portal to God. That's a fascinating story. We're going to have a look at that in another lecture. Do you know how many Babs there are in the world today? Oh, they all call themselves Bab, Sai Bab, Ban. Oh, you name it. Lots of Babs out there. We better watch out for all the Babs. Only one Bab that leads to God, and that's Jesus. Only one gate, only one portal. But here's another form of cleansing. Jesus says, I will sprinkle you with his salt. Papacy says, no, 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 I'll do it. You'll be saved through the system. No other way. Two ideologies clash. The priests, they were bowed down to, their slippers were kissed, their rings were kissed. This is paganism. There's the sign of Shamash, which you will find whew, everywhere in the world today. Unbelievable where you will find the signs of Shamash. The Gnostics, founded by Simon Magus, who according to Eliphas Levi, became sorcerer to Nero. History Le Maga, Magi, page 199. These are the very prominent sources. Levi. You know, people like to have that name on the back of their, whatever, you know. Very prominent. And if you go to Rome, this is a symbol that you will find over there. This is... Uh, outside of that ancient pagan temple where all uh, religions were honored. And on the bottom you have the square, which is Masonic. Then you have the elephant on top of that. And then you have this symbol on top with a cross on top. And everybody says, that looks very nice. Unless you know, of course, that the square is the symbol or the cube of the ancient deities and that the Elef is the Alpha, the Elef, the first letter, the Elephant, which is the bull of the East. So in Hinduism, they still have the Elef as the symbol of the sun god. The first one in the Hebrew, it is the bull. And on top of it, the missing piece of Osiris, and on top of that, the Tao. So you have the full catastrophe of pagan worship in this symbol over here in Catholicism. And crimson and purple are the colors. Isn't it fascinating 
that they believe that we have the knowledge of good and evil. So we will find that the Pope will always be dressed in white. He represents the white side, the Luciferian side. And his side man, his sidekick if you like, the one who is the military dictator of all of this, will wear which color? Black. So the head of the Jesuit order always wears black. So that you have both sides of the knowledge of good and evil. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of the abominations of the filthiness of her fornication. Strong language. If you take the papal crown, the papal triple crown, that comes from Medo-Persia, if you had that crown alone, you could probably get all the debt out of the United States of America if you sold it. And the priests that uh, officiate, they have the same colors and they, of course, here celebrate the Mass, which is the literal sacrificing of Jesus Christ again and again and again and again. Seated on the papal throne before the main altar in St. Peter's, Pope Paul listens to Cardinal Sunan's famous sermon on Pope John, delivered during the second session of the council. The sermon began... There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Very interesting. What happened at the second council? Well, at the second council, all were invited again into the sisterhood of the churches, except that Rome would be the mother and everybody else could remain a sister. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. Idolatry was the, the worship in the old System, idolatry, is the same worship in the present system. Exactly the same. But idolatry takes many forms. Idolatry doesn't mean just bowing down to a statue. Idolatry could mean something else as well. And wouldn't it be interesting if we knew that Rome actually controlled that aspect as well in its totality, completely and utterly? Well, we cannot today go into all the systems of idolatry, that would be impossible. But uh, idolatry does not mean just bowing down to an idol. You could have different idols. What about world sports? And who controls world sports? Well, if you look at the symbols that they have, every single one of these super clubs has a Masonic symbol. It's very interesting. The greatest football team in the world, Manchester United, even uses the devil directly. Why not? Sounds good to me. <laughs> Masonic ladders, Masonic chevrons, uh, signs of shamash. Why not? These are the greatest teams in the world. And what about all of these? We have animals of darkness. We have uh, flying horses, which is Pegasus. We have all these interesting symbols with pentagrams and uh, shields of Malta and sun symbols and pentagrams and double-headed lions and goats, all the symbols and fleur-de-lis, you name it, we have it. Masonic M's, Masonic anchors, the whole shooting match. The Masonic fingers, the um, 
skull and bones, Titan is actually Satan's Greek name. So we have all these interesting features. The G, we, anybody who's a Freemason will know that that comes from the Masonic Lodge. If we go to Exodus, chapter 32, verse 2 to 6, And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters. Well, today, earrings are very popular. And bring them to me. He made a golden calf, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast of Jehovah. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, what did they play? What did you think they played? Well, part of the system of sun worship was to play sports. What kind of sport did they play? That's very interesting. Well, let's go to UNESCO. They should know because the UNESCO um, manifest, as you know, was written by a Skull and Bones member. So he must be an interesting insider. And he writes, for example, Polo was known to the Persians and restored to its original sun game significance by Akbar. Scoring a goal with a sun ball was equated with the triumph of light over darkness, good over evil. But remember that masonry calls light darkness and darkness light and calls Jesus and Jehovah evil. So the triumph of light over darkness represented in paganism the triumph of Lucifer over Jesus Christ. So the triumph of darkness over darkness, good over evil. The ball is the sun symbol in all such sports as football, hockey, basketball, cricket. Baseball is related to the sun and the sundial shape and the pattern of the field as well as its rules of play and scoring. Like all sports, baseball also embodies the sun's seasonal cycle in much the same way as ancient ceremonial contests were held as part of fertility rites. So if you can't get them to the church, get them to the sports field. Isn't that interesting? And in the church you see the arms going like this, and on the sports field you see the arms going like this. Hymns are sung in the church, hymns of a different nature are sung over there. It's quite fascinating. Who cares as long as he has worship? Sumerian Gilgamesh story inscribed in cuneiform tablets narrates how the sporting equipment, a stick and a ring or a ball, which Gilgamesh had carved out of the uprooted tree, had fallen into the netherworld as he began oppressing his people by repeated athletic competitions. Now, eventually, it was the sun god who opened a hole in the ground in order to recover them. So if you had a stick and you had a ball, if you took the stick and you got the ball into the hole, that was a symbol. It has a deeper meaning than what we really believe. Actually, it's quite a um, meaning, but forget about that. That's what golfers do, for example. You know, it's amazing. And how often we are told that this is marvelous and it's good for Christianity and all these things. I have nothing against sports. Sport is a good recreation. Sport is good for exercise. There are things that you can do with sport that are good, but if sport becomes a religion, isn't that problematic? 
Isn't that idolatry? The Olympic torch, which the runner carries to mark the sun's cyclic movement through the Olympiad, the four-year period until the next games, is also related to the sun's cyclic rhythm. First celebrated in Greece, the name was ceremonial contest in honor of Zeus. Did you see the opening ceremony? Now, the Greek one, didn't they honor the gods? Yes or no? Yes. And we go. Off we go. Well, sun, moon, and other planets float overhead. Barcelona Olympic Games, the sun's association with sports, predates the deities Heracles and Apollo in Greece, as is evident from the epic tale of the Sumerian hill hero Gilgamesh. Fascinating stuff. As in sport, the sun is omnipresent on practically all aspects of life, whether it be art, architecture, philosophy, religion, festivals, folklore, dance, music. Wow! He's got every base covered. Every morning a pagan god of the day wakes us up. For the Romans in the early century of Christian era named each day after the seven planets, Sun, Moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn. We look at the symbols of the Olympics. You'll see they've got Baladad symbol, Baladad symbol, Baladad symbol, Baladad symbol, Baladad symbol. You can find them all over there. This is paganism. Here is a young man bringing a fine hockey shirt to the Pope. Let's see what he will do with it. A fine hockey shirt. Wow, that's a blessed shirt. So, Freemasonry controls all these issues for Rome today. The sporting world, the religious world, this is fascinating. I wonder how much idolatry is hidden in the mystery and how much more the Bible wants to reveal about this amazing story of Revelation 17. Let us wait for a further episode to find out. This is a picture of St. John's Lateran. Now, St. John's Lateran is the main church in Rome. Not St. Peter's, that's where the papacy is active and does all its major things, but this is where the Pope is crowned, and this is where he speaks ex cathedra. Uh, again, please note that it's called St. John's. Remember, I've told you before about the St. John's secret of the Templars and how they were Johnsonites, Johansonites, if you like. The wine of her fornication, the mother of the churches, Imater Ecclesia. Revelation 17.5 says she is the mother of prostitutes. Revelation 18.7 says, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, I will never mourn. And Isaiah 47 verse 8 says, I am, that's God, and there is none beside me. I will never be a widow or suffer loss of children. So if churches separated from her, maybe she'll get them back, she says. I will not suffer loss. Dominus Iesus, other churches are no sisters of ours, the Vatican insists. September 5, 2000, the Independent. Well, the Church of Rome fulfills every single prophecy. 
It must always be clear that the one holy Catholic and apostolic universal church is not the sister but the mother of all the churches. Cardinal Ratzinger, 9-4-2000. He makes it pretty plain. Cardinal Ratzinger is the head for the foundation of doctrine and faith, which is the old Inquisition. Definition of incredulity, heresy, apostasy. There is no graver offense than heresy and therefore it must be rooted out with fire and the sword. That's what the Catholic Encyclopedia said in 1911. The Catholic Catechism says incredulity is the neglect of revealed truth or the willful refusal to assent to it. Heresy is the obstinate post-baptismal denial of some truth which must be believed with divine and Catholic faith. So if the Pope has said something and you say, I don't believe it, you're a heretic. Must be rooted out with fire and the sword. Well, Protestantism said that. I don't want to accept that anymore, it said. I will not believe it. And so the Western Watchman in 1914 said, Protestantism is not a religion, never was a religion. The most that could be said about it was that it was a form of rape and robbery masquerading as a religion. There was a problem there. The Council of Trent, called by Pope Paul III between 1545 and 1563, met in three sessions. Protestants were present during the second meeting. I'll be dealing with this in a greater detail in another uh, lecture. But it's fascinating to see that the Council reaffirmed the doctrines disputed by the Reformists. Every single doctrine, and there was a specific reason why they did so. Why the Reformation lost at the Council of Trent. Fascinating story, but it's too long to discuss now. Doctrines reaffirmed were transubstantiation, that the body of Christ literally is formed during the Mass, justification by faith and works, the medieval Mass was upheld, the second seven sacraments, celibacy, doctrine of purgatory. We see this now in the modern Bibles, reaffirmed again, indulgences were reaffirmed, and papal power was increased. So all power now in one man. So after the Council of Trent, truly, there was all power in one man, which is called ultramontanism, and truly the Pope represents as the man of sin, which is transgression of the law. Well, what if you change the law? Then you not only transgress it, you have the audacity to change it. So, here we have a full system, as the Bible says it would be. Transubstantiation. Marvelous dignity of the priests in their hands as in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Son of God, becomes incarnate. Behold the power of the priest, the tongue of the priest makes God from a morsel of bread. It is more than creating the worlds. So they feel pretty good about that. Canon 1 says, if anyone, this is Council of Trent, session 13, if anyone denies that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and consequently the whole Christ, but says that he is only in it is in a sign or a figure or a force, let him be an anathema. There's a problem. I'm not going to go along with that because Jesus Christ was sacrifice. Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10 verse 14. 
So I have a problem with this statement. So when we celebrate the Mass, in the Roman Catholic sense, this is not remembering the Lord till He comes. This is wine of her fornication, right or wrong. And what it does, it nails Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ to the cross perpetually. He stays there all the time. He's crucified again and again and again and again. That's why their symbol too is the crucifix. Because that's they were, where they would like Jesus to stay, on the cross. But my Jesus is no longer on a cross. He is in heaven and he is coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Remember the forgiveness of sins, Luke 5, 21? Blasphemy if you say that you as a man can forgive sin. Forgiveness of sins. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I say to you, arise and take up your cot and go to your house. Jesus proved that he had that authority. But the priest has the power of the keys, the power of delivering sinners from hell and making them worthy of paradise and by changing them from slaves of Satan into children of God. God himself is obliged to obligated to abide by the judgment of his priests and either not to pardon or to pardon. We saw that yesterday. These are wine doctrines of fornication. Mary the Mediatrix, now Jesus disappears. 1854, Pope Pius declared Mary immaculate. 1951, he defined and enforced the doctrine of the bodily assumption to Mary. Catholic layman says, the sinner that ventures directly to Christ may come with dread and apprehension of his wrath. But let him only employ the mediation of the virgin with her son, and she has only to show that son the breasts that gave him suck, and his wrath will immediately be appeased. What a stupid doctrine. It's really disgusting. I could show you slides where I've been in the milk grotto. Anybody know about the milk grotto in uh, Bethlehem? where the milk of Mary is squirted up against the walls and it's a holy place, authenticated by the Pope. This is ancient fertility rite paganism. Imagine a son today, if the mother was angry with him, or he was angry with the mother, and she bared her breast. What would he think? They think, mother, have you gone insane? That is paganism. <laughs> this is fertility cult. These are statements by the Catholic saints. He falls and is lost who has no, not recourse to Mary. Mary is called the gate. Hold it. Jesus says, I am the door. There's no other way, says Jesus. Gate of heaven, because no one can enter that blessed kingdom without passing through her. The way of salvation is open to none otherwise than through Mary. The salvation of all depends on the being favored and protected by Mary. He who is protected by Mary will be saved. He who, will, who is not will be lost. Our salvation depends on thee. God will not save us without the intercession of Mary. Well, tell us, is that not wine of his fornication? The Pope says Mary must be a goddess. Maria soll Göttin werden. Then the the dogma of the assumption. We dealt with this issue. I'm just showing it to you now in Revelation to see how it all fits together. We've dealt with all these issues already. Tradition, infallibility, and the scriptures. Bonaventure Henwood, papal uh, spokesman, more answers to your questions. 
that tells us that the Pope is infallible. The Bible, we've dealt with this issue, the index of prohibited books, the Textus Receptus is prohibited, but the Jesuit version is not. Well, we dealt with this issue. We had a whole lecture on it. Isn't this wine of his fornication? Isn't this making Jesus less than he is? Septuagint was made for the Alexandrian library. Here is this uh, theologian, Paul Netter. Who is he? Paul Netter served as divine word missionary before assuming position at Xavier University where he's president, presently professor of theology. Where did he study? At the Pontifical Gregorian University. That's the biggest Jesuit university in Rome. And studied under Karl Rahner, who was Karl Rahner. Karl Rahner was the Jesuit who was put in charge of making all the churches subject to Rome again. We'll be dealing with that in a later lecture. He writes a book, No Other Name, and then he goes to show that you can be saved any way you want to. Any way you want to. Whatever you want to be saved by, go for it. Hello, isn't this wine of a fornication? World religion, Masonic signals, Dalai Lamas, crosses, bent crosses. Did you know that that's the same cross that Satanists use? With an emaciated Jesus on there? With a V sign over there, the Masonic triangle? hanging on this bent cross. This is Luciferianism. And they use IHS. They say it means Jesus hominum salvator. Some say it means in his service. No, it means Isis Horus Sep, the Egyptian trinity. If you look at the, the outer court, it's a circle within a circle, a wheel within a wheel. It is the eight spokes of the wheel of the solar system or the solar deities with the Osiris missing part right in the middle. Fascinating. Mitra, killing the bull, victory over evil. Evil, remember, esoterically is defined as Jesus. Here's the structure of the cult. Members went through seven grades, each of which had special symbol of tutory planet, from the lowest to the highest, it was Korax, the raven, and the mercury, Nymphus. Notice this, interesting. Nymphus, a made-up word meaning male bride under Venus. That means when you were initiated into this priesthood, you became a male bride. Celibate. Does Rome do that? Yes. But as the male bride, you do not have to be as celibate as some think. So let's not go into those details. And Miles, the soldier under Mars, Leo, the lion under Jupiter, Persis, the Persian under Luna, the moon, Heliodromus, the sun's courier under Sol, the sun, and finally Pater, father under Saturn. It was possible for a Mithraic initiate to be a member of more than one cult. Women were not permitted to become members. This is Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is Mithraism. This is the Persian aspect of it. Here is the occult arm. These are the wandering bishops. They control occultism in the world, the deep secrets of the occults. All things to all men. There the Pope receives the tilak. He receives the bindi, the red mark on the forehead, which is the sign of Siva, and Siva is Lucifer. 
And here he kisses the Quran, all things to all men. The Bible says, Revelation 17, verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. Well, here they are from the fall. Lech Walesa, in front of the Pope. We look at the kings of the world that have created havoc upon this planet, dealings with the papacy. We see the Gorbachevs with the papacy. We see the so-called dictators with the papacy actually part and parcel of it. Why do they always wear black when they visit the Pope? Because they have to reflect the two sides of the Masonic story, the knowledge of good and evil. The queen of the Bilderbergers, Prince Philip, will have some interesting things to say about him. Prince Charles in his black with the white Pope. And here we have the equivalents in the Islamic world. Black tie, at least he's got that on, and black socks. There is Margaret Thatcher, there is Carter, the Japanese, the Bushes, and the Blairs. Do the kings of the world work with this system, yes or no? Is there any system on this planet that qualifies like this system? Ignatius Loyola, under them, together. And if you're thinking about voting, Wahlkampf der Schädelgruftis. Well, that simply means that the battle will be between this young man over here, and this young man over here, and they're both Skull and Bowles members, so who cares who wins the next election? Who cares? Revelation 17, 6, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That's Revelation 17, 6. Well, there it is. Bartholomew Knight, the Valdenses, the 30-year war, the 100-year war, the bloodshed, Stalin, you name it, what they did to God's people, unbelievable. They slaughtered them left, right, and center. The Inquisition, Thomas Aquinas said, the convicted heretic should be put to death as surely as other criminals. The Catholic Church is a respecter of conscience and of liberty. Nevertheless, when confronted with heresy, she has recourse to force, to corporal punishment, to torture. She lit in Italy the funeral piles of the Inquisition. This is the only system that qualifies. We've already dealt with the Jesuit oath. I'm not going to read that oath again. The terrible tortures for heresy who shall believe and practice what they want to decide for themselves. Deciding for oneself what one shall believe. Revelation 17 gives us more information. Revelation 17, 7. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So let's discuss it a little bit more. The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend. The Lamb of God once was, then he was not, and then he will come again. Isn't that right? So it's a counterfeit of Christ. The system puts itself in the place of Jesus Christ. So this political power, this beast which thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. That's an interesting statement. There's been much speculation on this. 
And let's try and unravel it and see if we can come up with something. I don't want to be dogmatic, but let's see what we can get. Is not stage. In 1798, the beast received a mortal wound. Is that correct? So the beast once was, it ruled over the Middle Ages, then it is not, it died, it seemed to have a mortal wound, and then it will come again. Is that right? So let's look at this is not stage. 1798, it received a mortal wound. What did it do in secrecy, clandestinely, when it was supposedly dead? Well, 1854, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. In 1870, infallibility. In 1929, he crowned himself sovereign ruler of the world. 1951, the Assumption of Mary. Current Mary is advocate, mediator, and co-redeemer. That's totally replacing Jesus Christ. What a system that developed in that time. Revelation 17, 9. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. Oros, mountain, on which the woman sitteth. Now, besides the fact that Rome is built on seven hills, that is an interesting point, there are other issues as well. The number seven is also part of those kingdoms, remember. And there are seven kings. So now we have a king and a kingdom coming together. Five are fallen, one is, the other is not yet come, and when he cometh he must continue a short space, and the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven and goes into perdition. That's a jawbreaker for those who like puzzles. Let's have a look at the head or mountains. In the Bible, they symbolize empire, not individual kings. And I will render unto Babylon and to all the inhabitants of Chaldea all their evil that they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, says the Lord, which destroyeth all the earth, and I will stretch out mine hand upon thee and roll thee down from the rocks and will make thee a burnt mountain. This is a reference to Babylon that was going to attack God's people. So a mountain is a kingdom. So let's identify the seven heads. Now, I don't intend to be dogmatic at all. And I don't believe it's a question of salvation, whether you have it right or whether you don't. Questions of salvation refer to your relationship with Jesus Christ and nothing else. So whether we have them exactly right or not, it doesn't really matter. But God gives us information. Let's look at it. It's interesting. Interpretation 1. If we look at it from the time of John, the seven heads represent the principal persecuting powers of God's people over the ages. This is one interpretation. Five have fallen. They say Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Five have fallen. One is, well, looking at it from the time of John, that would be Rome. The other is not yet come. That's the papacy. That's one interpretation that's quite popular, and many people adhere to it, and I have no problem if anybody wants to adhere to it, because we end up with this final power, which obviously is the one that causes all the problems. 
The only problem that I have with this interpretation is, which powers do you leave out over here? Because Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece are the ones that are mentioned. And you're starting with the time of John. So that's an assumption you make in order to unravel this prophecy. But which ones do you leave out? For example, if you go to Ezekiel 16, 26, and you look at the enemies of God, you had the Egyptians, you had the Philistines, you had the Assyrians, you had the Chaldeans. So in that interpretation, the Philistines, for example, are left out. What if I didn't want to leave them out? Then my numbers would be wrong, right? So, personally, I don't have a problem with the main structure, but the details don't quite satisfy me. Identification of the seven heads, interpretation two. Using Daniel now as a template, which seems to be logical, because the book of Revelation uses the symbolism in the book of Daniel to transfer it to this situation that it describes in Revelation. So using Daniel as a template, some start with Babylon and count from the time of the events portrayed in Revelation 17. So again, you have to make a decision. Now where do we start? With the events starting in Revelation 17. Five have fallen. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, papacy. One is the wounded papacy. Now you're starting with the time in Revelation 17 where he says one is. So that's the time. So they get to Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, papacy. One is, that would be the wounded papacy. Not yet come would be the final confederacy under the papacy because his mortal wound will heal and all the world will follow him. So that's a nice interpretation. I have no major problem with that. I only have one little question. What about the other powers mentioned in the book of Revelation? How do you fit them in then? Then you have to leave out some of the other beasts, the two-horned beast and uh, all of those. So what do we do to incorporate them? And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which thou saw was, is not, shall ascend. Where does it descend from? Bottomless pit. Ah! Now, which other beast descended from the bottomless pit? The one in Revelation chapter 11. Remember that? The one that starts making war on the word of God, the whole philosophy of the French Revolution, all of that. Go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundations of the world, when they behold the beast that was, is not, yet is. Seven kings, five have fallen. And then you have this little bit of information here. And the other is not yet come, and when he comes he must continue a short space, and the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. And is of the seven, and goes into perdition. Ah, a little bit more detail. So the eighth, he goes into perdition, but actually the eighth is part of the seven. Let's fit that together. Interpretation number three. Using Daniel as a template, let's start with Babylon and count from the time of the events portrayed in Revelation 17. So much like the previous one. So, five have fallen. Babylon, 
Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, papacy. That's a religio-political power that ruled over the Middle Ages. So that's where you get to, starting with the events portrayed in Revelation 17. One is, a seemingly wounded papacy is not, it says, yet is. It seemed to have a mortal wound. Do you remember that? And we saw that it actually grew and that the Jesuit organizations built up a whole world empire in that time. Communism, all these things developed in this not-ease stage. So seemingly wounded papacy is not yet. That's a non-religio-political powers run by secret papal societies arising from the bottomless pit in Revelation 11. That's what happened during the not-yet phase. Not yet come, the image of the beast. That's the religio-political confederacy under the lamb-like beast. The eighth is of the seven. There will be a new world order, a final world confederacy under the papacy. Now, this one is not much different from the previous one. And whether we like the previous one or this one, it doesn't really matter to me. Personally, that's how I would like to put it together myself. But I'm not hooked on it. I mean, it doesn't really matter as long as the final one ends up to be the papacy because he arises then and he goes to perdition. But this one, for me, includes all the images that we have in the book of Revelation. So, this is what I presume it might mean. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet. So if this is the stage where we're talking, this is not stage, and there are ten that have not yet received the kingdom, then that's future, then what does this ten stand for? But receive power as kings one hour with the beast. There must be some confederacy. So ten could mean the number of completeness, all the kingdoms of the world giving their power to the beast. Or it could be something else. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. And these shall make war with the lamb. This is the persecuting power at the end. And the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings and they are with him and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So here's the final battle that will take place. On September 17, 1973, the Club of Rome published a special, highly confidential report called the Regionalized and Adaptive Model of the Global World System. Fascinating stuff. Which was sent to the power elite to be implemented. This document reveals that the club has divided the world into ten political economic regions, which it refers to as kingdoms. A designation that tracks eerily with the terminology used in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, 1 to 2. In 1974, the authors of the report, Mialio, Mazarik, blah, 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 Pestel, published their final findings in a book, Mankind at the Turning Point. However, in this book, which is intended for public consumption, they have dropped the word kingdom. This comes from a very good source and root to global occupation, Gary H. Carr. So the world is being divided into 
ten regions. Did you know that there are certain monarchies left and certain royal families in the world? Some interesting stuff that we might be talking about in the next lectures to come. And he says unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitters, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. The ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Wow! So first we have the kingdoms of the world giving their power unto this beast, unto this religious system, and then this religious system goes and makes war against God's people. What happens next? Any idea? God puts a hedge around his people. He protects them. He holds them in the palm of his hand, just like he did in Egypt. And they legislate against them. They cannot buy, they cannot sell, they can do nothing. Your bread and your water shall be sure. A thousand shall fall by your side. Ten thousand at your right hand, it will not come near you. All the promises of God apply. Eventually, they try in their anger to eradicate this group that clings to doctrines contrary to world doctrines. And God sends plagues. And there is much suffering on earth. And God's people are hedged. Eventually even, these powers realize that they have been what? Duped. And they turn with bitter hatred and aggression and destroy the very one that tried to destroy God's people. That's what it says. That's what it says. Fascinating stuff. Now notice very interestingly that they burn her with fire. What was the punishment in the Old Testament for a whore that was caught in fornication? She was stoned. She was stoned to death. But this one is burnt with fire. What was the punishment for the daughter of a priest that was caught in prostitution? She was burnt. Isn't this interesting? See the analogies? Boy, the Bible is a fascinating book. Anybody tell me that humans thought this book up? And I will tell you, I will eat that beamer and my computer if this is so. For God has put it into their hearts, permissive will of God, because these kings are lost too, to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. This great Babylon controlled by the whore of Babylon. Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. That's the ending of the matter. So my question to you tonight is, do we fear the system to the point of obeying it, or do we cling to God? What's our choice?
Why would we be so stupid to go with the system if this is what's going to happen to the system? We would be fools not to follow God. Besides the fact that God, God has a beautiful character that never forces anyone and only draws, that God is full of loving kindness and gentleness, why would I be so stupid to want to follow this system? Jeremiah 50, 24 says, I have laid a snare for thee, and thou hast also taken, O Babylon, and thou wast not aware thou art found and also caught because thou hast striven against the Lord. That was the typology. The Lord has opened his armory and has brought forth the weapons of his indignation, for this is the work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from the utmost border upon her storehouses, cast her up as heaps and destroy her utterly. Let nothing of her be left. Slay all her bullocks, let them go down to the slaughter. Woe unto them, for their day is come, the time of their visitation. God is going to end that system. The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. Call together the archers against Babylon, all ye that bend the bow, camp against it, around about, let none thereof escape. Nobody's going to escape. This is the typology. The final will be the antitype. Recompense her according to her work the millions that have died as a consequence of her, according to all that she has done, do unto her, for she has been proud against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Therefore shall her young men fall, and all her men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O thou most, thou most proud, says the Lord God of hosts, for thy day is come, the time that I will visit thee. This system is going to end. And the most proud shall stumble and fall, and none shall raise him up. And I will kindle a fire in its cities, and it shall devour all around him. Amazing stuff. Their redeemer is strong. These from Judah, the children of Judah, were oppressed together. The children of God will be oppressed at the end of time. And all that took them captive held them fast. They refused to let them go. Their redeemer is strong. He's stronger than them. The Lord of hosts is his name. He shall thoroughly plead their cause that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. A sword is upon the Chaldeans, says the Lord, and upon the inhabitants of Babylon and upon our princes and upon our wise men. None of their wisdom is going to help them. Isaiah 26 says, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee Hide thyself as, as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. The Lord is going to punish Babylon and God's people will be taken care of. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. There will be a resurrection. Isaiah 26 verse 20 and 21. In that day, the Lord, with his sore and great strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. That's the biblical story, the most amazing story that has ever unfolded in the history of the world.
Revelation 19.1, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord of our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he has judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Isn't that fascinating? Revelation 19.19, let's see what happens to her. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. So here they come. And the beast, Catholicism, was taken and with him the false prophet. Sad. Who's that? We'll have to wait for another episode. That wrought miracles before him. Well, I can tell you who that was. Who was that that wrought the miracles before him? It was the Protestant world. It was in the United States that the fire came down and the miracles were done and that the, the religious system, the image of the beast, enforced the papal doctrines. We've dealt with it. Might as well deal with it. With which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast live into the lake of burning with brimstone. There's only one missing here. That's the dragon. He gets dealt with later. And the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Don't mess with God. You'll end up here. Revelation 19.6 and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That's the end of the matter. And we have nothing to fear. Nothing. In the next lecture, we're going to look at the New World Order and we're going to look at some of these issues that are taking place in the world today. It is frightening stuff, but nevertheless, when you see these things happening, lift up your eyes, for you know that your redemption draweth nigh. Trust in the Lord Jesus and fear nothing. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry to help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.